Welcome to Sober Sisters Talk. I'm MG. And I'm Elizabeth Pudwell. Welcome. The speaker series happens once a month. This will be part of our weekly Zoom meeting that happens every Friday night. If you would like to be a part of that meeting, you have to be female. And send us an email at SoberSistersTalk at gmail.com. If you would like to tell your story, please reach out to SoberSistersTalk at gmail.com. We want to have more stories out there in order to help other women. And here's our next speaker. Thanks for listening. Also, we'd love to invite you to a Zoom meeting this Friday night at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. If you're interested, email SoberSistersTalk at gmail.com and we'll send you the meeting information and password. We hope to see you this Friday. I've been really, really pleased and happy the the longer I know her and the more that I get to know her. She, um, you know, when she first came in, she identified as an avoidant and it took a minute, but I feel really blessed that I'm one of those people that she allows in and that um, I get to know who Jessica really is. And I think you guys are going to learn a lot and be able to resonate with her story. Take it away, Jess. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you all for being here. Um, I'm happy to share my story. And I was telling when I first logged in that you just never know how this is going to go. So um, I took a few notes that I'll glance at occasionally, but Otherwise, I'll just let God direct me the way that I want to tell this Um, because it always comes out differently. So, um, but I'll start with my childhood, kind of at the beginning. Both my parents are in recovery. So I was born to two sober and then Alcoholics Anonymous parents. They had been, they met in recovery. They had been sober a couple years when they had me. Both of them came from very abusive, toxic families really had the intention and I think succeeded in many ways to raise uh, my siblings and I differently. My dad was a heroin addict in and out of jail. My mom was standard alcoholic. And again, they had a couple years sober by the time I was born. So, but they got together very young, which I mean, very young in sobriety, which I later put together. They, they were engaged at their one year. So they got together early. So my childhood, like I mentioned, I had siblings. I had a, a younger sister and a younger brother. I was the oldest. A lot of being the oldest to me, there was a lot of um, what I felt like pressure to be an example to my siblings. I was very caretaking from a young age. I was very responsible, very mature, very much that these are, you know, that I needed to act a certain way. I was praised for being the perfect child in opposition to my sister who was very wild and outgoing from the moment she was born and we were very different in in every way in personality in appearances um she was blonde hair blue eyed pale skin she's five foot i'm five eight i mean very very different all of our lives and treated differently so you know that really kind of shaped how i perceived myself and how i wanted other people to perceive me and so as a child, I was, I was a very studious kid. I was very shy. I often, uh, part of my addiction early on was I'd often um, 
isolate and hide in books. I read a lot. It was a fantasy. It was it was an escape. Um, I felt very overwhelmed with my childhood. That pressure on me. I was always looking for an escape, and that was in a lot into reading. I often I was again I was very shy, and my parents are both very outgoing individuals, and so is my sister. Brother's a little different, but. So I was kind of felt like I didn't really belong there. You know, they're very, I mean, they're just outgoing. Um, and, and now I am because there's certain things about me as I found who I was. But at that age, that's not how I, how I was at all. And so, you know, I had a pretty, I was raised in a pretty, you know, nice home, pretty, you know, normal childhood on the outside. Nothing extremely traumatic happened, but again, I always felt different. There were a few little things, but for the most part, that kind of, that was my childhood. One of the big things that happened was that when I was about 10, I think, my father was diagnosed with hepatitis C, part of his consequences of his heroin use. And he, at that time, they didn't know a lot about hepatitis C. Put on a test, one of the, the trials of, of the treatment called interferon, and he was one of the few that was on the, the initial test or uh, treatment of this. There was a, things very much shifted in my, in my home. And with that, my dad didn't want to work as much. He was very depressed. He was very withdrawn a lot. He was sick. The treatment made him very sick. It was overwhelming. And, and not to mention, there was sort of this idea that, like, he was probably going to die. And so it was that, that was probably the toughest thing in my childhood. And so I started using, and Elizabeth mentioned, I've been sober off drugs and alcohol since I was 15. And I started using around 6th, 7th grade. I think I was like 11, 12. And part of that was, I think, lots of reasons, but, is, you know, escape. It was a new tool. I don't know. I went to a party. People were drinking, and I thought, oh, I'll try, you know. And I'd always been warned that there's addiction in my family, but whatever. I was a kid. And the moment I started drinking, I felt that that was my solution to my to me, you know. It wasn't a problem in my mind. It was the answer because I was no longer shy. It, it really, I was more flirtatious, which I liked. I was outgoing. I felt less awkward. I felt just, I felt better. And so I kind of kept writing that for a, for a few years, you know. And things progressed very quickly, and I ended up getting an, um, sober off drugs and alcohol in a young people program. So, and so this is a slob meeting. I won't go into all that too, too much, but part of what my sex and love addiction kind of looked like is, as I mentioned, I was very shy, and then drinking kind of helped me be more outgoing, and I had a, I got a boyfriend when I was using, and we, it was a very toxic relationship and he was older and it was just not great naturally and uh but I didn't know better you know or care like we 
broke up. He had cheated on me. And I wasn't that upset, but I didn't know how to respond. And I was very depressed and drinking a lot. So that all kind of plays a part. But my response was that I thought a normal response for someone in this, in this situation would be to do something very dramatic. And I overdosed. I tried to commit suicide because that was my response. What I thought should be response to someone hurting me. And so I had no idea how to deal with relationships and with breakups and just my emotion. I did not like to feel things. I did not like to feel sad, depressed. I just did not want to feel any of anything that I could do to not feel was I was always going to pick that. As I got sober in my early teens, I did learn, you know, I started working the 12 steps and I did, you know, after some time realize, learn about addiction and what that looked like and self-care and friendships. So I, I did learn things, but with it became other addictions that I started to realize that I had. And, and I just, I didn't use the spiritual tools, the right, the way to in every aspect of my life. And so I, you know, I started shopping excessively gambling is the thing I have an issue with my sex and love addiction really started to come for, to come forward. Part of that is, you know, was, so I start, I had a, my uh, first sober boyfriend we dated from, I think pretty much the time I got sober, like 15 to 17. We broke up and it was my choice. But again, I was so uncomfortable with my feelings around that breakup that I didn't, I didn't know how to handle it. And I didn't, um, I didn't want to be with him. And I was very clear. I broke up with him. But at the same time, it, I didn't know how to be alone. So part of that, I started becoming much more promiscuous, you know, uh, unhealthy boundaries, unhealthy friendships with female and males. And I was very scared of commitment, very scared. And I ended up meeting my husband during this time. And we had a very back and forth uh, relationship. We ended up committing to one another, but I, I just, you know, it was so scary. Again, being vulnerable and being, showing someone who I was and feeling feelings was so uncomfortable for me. Part of what was comfortable, which part of the, you know, in my childhood, that uh, image of perfection, when I did something wrong, you know, even when I started using, for instance, and, and even through my adulthood, you know, I was very comfortable in like keeping that a secret. You know, it wasn't like I was out there um, drinking and using and like telling everyone at the beginning, you know, I really maintained this image of perfection, really kept up my grades and kept, you know, kept um, up this appearance. And that, that really persisted into my relationship with my husband, which was, you know, we perceived ourselves as, you know, showed ourselves as being this couple in sobriety. We both got sober very young and that we had our, had our, you know, stuff together, that we were this couple that other people should respect and look, look up to. And, and that's, and people did, you know, and I liked that as well, you know, and I, I did a lot of caretaking for others and I did a lot of helping others. But when it came to talking about how I felt or how we were really doing, never, you know, I very rarely, I started having um, an affair or cheating. We weren't married at the time with one person in particular. And I, I had cheated on him throughout and we had kind of broken up and gotten back together as him as well. But then we were fairly committed to one another. And this became a very big 
obviously a big secret and I didn't tell anyone. And so I was really consumed by this secret relationship. Uh, it was a very lonely uh, place to be. I ended up getting honest with a few people that I knew and now called Synonymous and kind of was received the same feedback from every, everyone. And that was like, well, I was engaged at the time. And that was like, well, you know, good thing you got it out of your system. Once you're married, everything's, everything's going to be better. Everyone really, I had them convinced and I had myself convinced that marriage was the answer to my addiction. That is what, I mean, multiple people had told me. And it wasn't that many, you know, I, I kind of kept it tight knit and was like, I, um, so that's what I believed. I, so I put everything into this marriage, you know, this, this wedding, not the marriage. I didn't know shit about marriage. Sorry. Let's try not to use bad words, but I didn't know anything about marriage, but it's the wedding. So I had this big wedding and it was all about this preparing for this wedding and this, you know, we ha I had eight bridesmaids and like, it was this 300 people you know, to cover my feelings because I wasn't going to admit that to myself or to others what was doing. And one of my, my qualifier was in my wedding. He was a friend of my husband's a friend, um, not really a friend, but he, they were, uh, so he was there. I did try to get him out of the wedding, but it wasn't going to happen. So, so yeah, I just kind of tried to pretend and live in this secret and hope that nobody would find out and that the, everything would be better. Obviously, we all know that that's, that's not how addiction works. Within a few months of, of being married, still not having any idea what commitment meant, what sharing with him meant, what um, communication meant. I mean, I didn't know any of it. We, I think at that point, we still had people, we always had people live with us, always. Those were buffers, you know. I didn't, we never could be alone. And so I started another, another affair. Same situation. I felt lost, alone, suicidal, hopeless, powerless, shame, guilt, confusion. I mean, I just, um, and what my addiction looked like in the very end was I'd wake up every day and think, okay, today's going to be different. You know, I'm going to go to school. I was in uh, still maintaining that image of perfection. And I was in law school because the ultimate like power position and career and everything was being an attorney. So I was in law school, not doing okay, not too great because I was severely acting out. I So I'd wake up and be like, okay, I'm going to go to class and I'm not going to reach out to this person. You know, I'm just going to go to school, do my work and like go home and whatever. And so midday I'd start feeling like this, anxious feeling inside me like mm, well maybe I'll just check on him see what's going on it couldn't hurt just convincing myself and that denial that I could text him you know and that everything would be fine you know so I'd reach out midday and then it would just turn into this whole what are you doing we should hang out when you get out of school whatever whatever and the next thing I know I get out of class and my husband is working at the time I go and meet up and think well we're not gonna we're just friends you know, we're not going to sleep together. We're just friends. You know, I just enjoy his company, whatever. I would end up having sex and it would be this buildup, this excitement, this, this energy, this, like this, you know, this like need to fulfill that. And then as soon as we were done, I would feel this hopelessness, this like complete anger, shame, everything. I would be so full of rage and just disappointment in myself and just immediately like so emotional 
and then I'd shut that down and, and I'd go home and I'd pray at night to like, please help me to not do this again. And I'd wake up and I'd do the same thing over and over and over again. And this went on for a long time. And not to mention there's other, other people that were involved, like other men that I got involved with. It was, it was not good. You know, my addiction really spiraled. What brought me into SLAA was pure luck, really, honestly. I, I didn't, I had heard about SLAW, but I didn't really know about it. I recognized addiction. I've looked through back through some old journaling that I did when I was in slaw or before slaw, and I recognized the addiction. Like everything that I just said, I might not have been able to, to say it quite the same, but I recognized that this was a pattern. Like I'd been there before, and that need and, and powerlessness over something was there. I equated it to this person or these people that I was involved with and just thought I was just hopeless. I had tried to work the 12 steps that other sponsor now called synonymous and couldn't, I couldn't get it. And so I got honest with someone. It was just, it was a bunch of drama. Everyone found out what was going on. I ended up selling a few people and then other people found out and I decided I needed to tell my husband. So that that was the only solution for me. And at this point I was very confused about love and like, if I wanted to be with this other person. So I told my husband and he wasn't surprised because, well, I had been, I mean, you know, I hadn't been, I'd been acting crazy, you know? And so I told him and I moved out. I had no, we had no idea what we were going to do. And I had no idea. And a couple of days later, maybe a week later, somebody's like, you should go to a slaw meeting. And they had been going to slaw. And I had another girlfriend at this time who was going through a very similar situation. And, th and that's important too, because she was someone who I got sober with in a very similar situation. And so we came, we came to Slaw together. When I came to my first meeting, I listened. It was a Monday night meeting, and I felt so connected. I felt like, I felt angry. I didn't want to be in another 12-step program, so I was real pissed off to be there. But I also heard what I needed to hear. I heard there was a solution, that I wasn't crazy, that there was a, something called sex and love addiction. Like, there was a solution. And that was powerful to me. And I was ready to try anything. Because, I mean, I felt like I just, I destroyed my marriage and my thought, you know, I was like, that's done. And I was like, well, maybe I want to be with this person. And I immediately went into no contact. I did not talk to my husband. I told these other people involved with, I cannot talk to you. And I, that was it. So I went with, my withdrawal was very, very painful because I went from having my husband who felt as filled a certain need, one qualifier felt another need, another qualifier who felt another, filled another. I had emotional affairs as well that weren't sexual with, uh, with men, that everyone filled a need. And it became really apparent that I couldn't have any of those relationships. And so it was me and God, and that was it. You know, I mean, I, I started, I went to 90 meetings in 90 days. I started working the steps with a sponsor. I started to learn who I was and I realized that I it wasn't about having to pick between the, these men it was about figuring not repeating these patterns again no matter what happened I did not want to be keep doing what I was doing I was close to drinking you know I was real close to drinking and I didn't want to live that way anymore
I'm so grateful that I started doing this. So I wrote down some of the like the principles for the steps. I don't I know if y'all know that there's principles for the steps. Um, come, um, you know, and the first step is acceptance. And, you know, I accepted I was powerless over my sex and love addiction. You know, at first it was easier for me to admit, okay, I'm a sex addict. I saw that. It was harder for me to admit that I, the love part, because I'm really detached sex and love you know I could have sex with someone I didn't care about but when it came to commitment and love it was it was very much harder for me how I related to like avoidance was you know I would have my primary relationship where I would be somewhat committed to my husband for instance and then and then I would but I would avoid that commitment and act out in other ways but I became you know, able to see how my addiction played part in my life. And so accepting that and step two was hope, you know, realizing I had got to the point where God, I was very distant from God. My higher power became more of like, I was back into those drunk prayers. Like if you get me out of this one, I won't do it again. And really recommitting to my relationship with my higher power. And that came through going to meetings, listening to people, writing, praying, and feeling those feelings I've been stuffing. And it's amazing when you start feeling things that how much growth um, you you get. And step three is faith. You know, same as uh, trusting that like through other people and watching how the steps had worked in people's lives that it could work for me. And I knew that, you know, I, again, I've been sober and alcohol synonymous, so I knew the 12 steps could work. But there's something about being in a small meeting and hearing people tell their story that's different than being in a, than in a meeting. And so I really need to hear that I was not alone. And step four is courage. You're, you know, writing your, um, my inventory and really getting out that stuff. You know, the people I was resentful at, and there was a lot, there was a lot of this at this point and seeing my part. And I definitely had a part to play. And step five, honesty or integrity, you know, reading my inventory. See, I had told certain people certain things, you know, like I said, I had told somebody, some people about that first guy, but I hadn't told one person everything, not in a long time, you know, not since before, you know, uh, when I first got sober in AA. So that had been, I got, I had 10 years sober in, in Alcoholics Anonymous when I came into SLOG. And that was in February of 2007, by the way, when, so I have been sober from my bottom line behavior since February of 2007. So it's been 14 years. I got to, to read that inventory and tell someone everything. And step six and seven, willingness and humility and looking at my defects and really not getting, you know, looking at them and and accepting them and my willingness to change and asking God to remove them. You know, that humility was important in my growth, you know, because, you know, I no longer cared about what people thought of me anymore. You know, when I, when I came into SLAW, you know, I had this image that I was trying to maintain and I quickly realized like, it doesn't like I need, I, I need to put myself first, not portray this image of perfection. I need to put myself first. Step eight is love, making, you know, amends. Nine is responsibility and taking responsibility for, for my actions. Step 10, uh, 10 was perseverance and di or discipline and continuing to look at myself, continuing to take inventory, continuing to grow. Uh, 11 is, I saw a couple of awareness, spiritual, spirituality, 
and again, continue to grow that relationship with my higher power. And 12 is service. And service was big for me. I, you know, like I said, a lot of people, young people, young people's A's kind of, was kind of a mess. Probably still is. I'm not that young anymore, but it was a mess. And so I was very open about me being a sex and love addict. I very much told, I, I didn't go around like sharing it, but like a lot of people knew. And so I had a lot of women coming to me and asking me about it and, you know, and, and being interested in it. And a lot of people in sobriety. And so I really felt like, it was my responsibility to lead by example, you know, and just keep doing what I need to do and bring them to meetings when they needed to, if they wanted to come to a meeting. And then I did a lot of service work within SLAW. I served, um, I got involved very quick, very early in intergroup. Later on, I was an intergroup chair. You know, I, I got involved in like the service part of it, which was great uh, a great experience and difficult in its own right so today my husband and I did uh, reconcile and we reconciled after the first I, I we started that process I probably had I don't I don't remember a few months in the program part of that was me was him being willing and realizing that it wasn't just me there was a lot of things in our relationship that was not great you know part of why he proposed to me was because somebody told him your girlfriend has a really long leash maybe and so he was trying to control me by proposing to me to try to keep me from acting out you know he didn't know that's what I was doing but he knew I was just kind of wild there was a lot of unhealthiness he realized that and well was willing to do his part he went to therapy on his own I went to therapy we really, then we went to therapy together and we really worked through some stuff and learned how to communicate with one another. It's been, it's ups and downs. We are completely different together. Our relationships looks, looks just, it just looks different. You know, I'm, I feel more comfortable being alone. I remember the first time it was like, we're like, that feeling of being alone with him and not being afraid, you know, and just being vulnerable. And I still have that challenge and of being vulnerable. Just last night, I've been going through a lot of stuff with friendships. I have been just very emotional and it's unusual for me still, but I've been very emotional and I cried and let him hold me after the suggestion and that's somewhat, it was very intimate. I think, and he was like, I'm not sure what to tell you. And he had some things to tell me and he was, and I was like, that's okay. And you know, that's okay. I don't need to say anything to me. He was like, well, thank you for telling me this stuff. It was, it was good. And I'm so scared still to do things like that. And it was allowing him to take care of me, you know, but, um, is, is so important because I can't always be the one to take care of everyone. That's the role that I've, I've, was grown to be in, you know, and sometimes I need to be taken care of and that's nice. Um, but yeah, we've, we've gone through a lot. I have, you know, I, uh, have two kids that I'm able to be present and available for and like learn tools to deal with them. Law has just taught me so much. And I will, will say the last thing is that girl I mentioned that I got sober with, she took a completely different path than me. So she was engaged when we got into SLAW and she ended up getting married, even though they were very not doing what they need to be doing to get better. And she ended up 
they ended up getting divorced and it was a very toxic relationship and she was in and out of slaw and then she started getting going in and out of AA she relapsed and ended up back you know in a like in and out of jail you know in and out, uh, out off the, on the streets living kind of a completely unhealthy life I, I always would look at her or and, and we didn't talk too much she'd occasionally reach out to me to for help you know I'd always think that could have been me that that absolutely could have been me you know if I had just made a different choice or hadn't you know worked the steps and done things she that could have been me I could have been in and out of prison you know acting doing drugs again all because of my slaw addiction luckily I, I saw her uh, last year and she's sober again in AA but I'm sure her slaw stuff hopefully doesn't bring her back out I hope I I hope it makes me very sad, of course, but grateful because I, I know what I have today and I struggle like everyone, but I have the tools. SLA gave me the tools. I've gained a lot of great tools. So I guess that's all in there. Thank you all for listening to me. Um, hopefully I made sense uh, and I appreciate y'all. Thanks. That's it for this month's speaker meeting. Stay tuned to Sober Sisters Talk for next month's speaker. Thank you.